Please join me in prayer. Lord, help us to hear your word and obey it, that we may become instruments of your saving love. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Teach us today, in Jesus' name, amen. Fifty years ago, Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong made history by being the first humans to walk on the moon. But what I didn't know is that Buzz Aldrin actually took communion on the surface of the moon. Aldrin was an elder at Webster Presbyterian Church in Texas, and he felt he should somehow mark this historic occasion, so he asked his pastor to help him. The pastor consecrated a communion wafer and a small vial of communion wine, which Aldrin took with him out of the Earth's orbit and on to the surface of the moon. He and Armstrong had only been on the lunar surface for a few minutes when Aldrin made the following public statement. Houston, this is Eagle. I'd like to take this opportunity to ask every person listening in, whoever and wherever they may be, to pause for a moment and contemplate the events of the past few hours and to give thanks in his or her own way. He then ended radio communication, and there, on the silent surface of the moon, 250,000 miles from home, he read the same verse reread today from the Gospel of John, and he took communion. Here's his account of what happened. In the radio blackout, I opened the little plastic packages which contained the bread and the wine. I poured the wine into the chalice our church had given me. In the one-sixth gravity of the moon, the wine slowly curled and gracefully came up the side of the cup. Then I read the scripture. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whosoever abides in me will bring forth much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I ate the tiny host and swallowed the wine. I gave thanks for the intelligence and spirit that had brought two young pilots to the sea of tranquility. It was interesting for me to think the very first liquid ever poured on the moon and the very first food eaten there were the communion elements. And of course, it's interesting to think that some of the first words spoken on the moon were the words of Jesus Christ, who made the earth and the moon. Well, this summer, we've been looking at the I am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Jesus said, I am the bread, I am the light, I am the gate, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection, I am the truth. Jesus' Jewish audience would have immediately caught the significance of Jesus using these I am statements. The Greek words that are used are ego emi, which is the first person singular of the verb to be. 
So what Jesus says in Greek is equivalent to what God said to Moses in Hebrew. In the book of Exodus, when Moses goes up to Mount Sinai and encounters God in the burning bush, God identifies himself as, I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent you. The Hebrew for the to be verb is Yahweh, the holy name for God. In essence, this name identifies Jesus with God and recalls the opening lines of John's gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus Christ really is the one who made the earth and the moon. Earl Palmer states that this is the radical center of the Christian gospel. We believe that Almighty God himself, the ultimate I am behind all reality, has spoken for himself in Jesus Christ. If you want to know who God is, take a look at Jesus, what he says and what he does. Today, we end our sermon series by looking at John chapter 15, where Jesus says, I am the true vine. You know, there's an old Sunday school joke. Uh, Jesus is divine, and we are deep branches. <laughs> I know. Anything to help us remember scripture, right? As we've just seen, in using the phrase, I am, ego me," Jesus is indeed claiming divinity. That's the conclusion we come to after looking at all of these I am passages. Jesus is claiming to be God. C.S. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. Uh, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on, on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So last week, Pastor Aaron Williams preached on the passage where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Pastor Aaron pointed out that this is a controversial verse in 21st century society. But if you believe Jesus' claim to divinity, then all he's saying is that no one comes to God except through God. Now, having said that, I do believe we need to be humble and honest and careful about acknowledging what we know and what we don't know. Yes, if Jesus is indeed God, then no one comes to God except through God. But 
we don't always know what that looks like. Um, you know, in the movie about Notre Dame football called Rudy, a uh, character there, uh, Father Kavanaugh says, in 35 years of religious study, I've come up with two hard, incontrovertible facts. There is a God, and I'm not him. <laughs> Jesus himself said, I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold. So God is free to act as he wills, not as we want him to act. Okay, let's get back to our passage. If Jesus is the vine, we are the branches. And we can't bear any fruit without abiding in and being connected to the source of our life, Jesus the vine. And notice Jesus says that he's the true vine, implying that there are lots of other vines that are not true. It's easy for us to connect to other vines. These vines may even bring some good things, but they're not the true vine that gives abundant life. That's one of the reasons why the prayer of confession and the assurance of pardon are such vital components of worship. There are many things during the week that disconnect us from the true vine. Reconnection involves repenting and confessing our sins, admitting that we've separated ourselves and are no longer abiding in Jesus, our vine. The assurance of pardon then assures us that God has heard our confession and has returned us to the vine, the source of our life. Uh, I'd like to point out several interesting words in this passage. First, notice that in verses 2 and 3, they both contain the same footnote, footnote K. I always say when you study the Bible, pay attention to the footnotes. They're really, really helpful. Footnote K says, the same Greek root refers to pruning and cleansing. The Greek word that's used is the word katharizo. You know, we get the English word cathartic from this Greek word. The same word is used in John chapter 13 when Jesus tells Peter, one who has bathed does not need to wash except for the feet, but is entirely clean, katharos. Jesus is telling us the branch is pruned and disciplined, trimmed and cleaned by the Father so that it may bear fruit. Notice the freedom ingredient in Jesus' teaching. Nobody is forced to abide in the vine. But if we choose to, God will be glorified and our joy will be made complete. On the other hand, you know, if you think about the, the great branches at the wineries in the Napa Valley, they don't exercise choice in their connection with the main vine or in bearing fruit. But in this parable, it's clear that the branch has the freedom to either join or not join the vine. And notice the branch doesn't prune or cleanse itself. That's God's job. The branch has one major choice, to abide in the vine. It also has a secondary choice, and that is to bear fruit. Uh, if you want a, a list of the fruits of the Spirit, uh, look at Galatians chapter 5. 
The fruit is a natural result of a healthy relationship with the vine, including the pruning. And notice the order. The fruit comes after the abiding relationship. It's a consequence of the relationship. The second word that stands out for me in this passage is a word that keeps getting repeated over and over. It's the word that's translated abide. The Greek word is meno, and it appears 10 times in verses 1 to 11. The word means to abide, continue, dwell, endure, be present, remain, stand. It's the same root word that Jesus uses in the previous chapter when he says, in my father's house are many dwelling places, meno. The King James Version translates this verse, in my father's house are many mansions. Jesus is assuring his disciples that if they put their weight down on his trustworthiness, they will find a safe abiding place. Abiding then becomes the most crucial link to our understanding of what Christian faith means. At the very heart of it all, faith is primarily a relationship word. Stick with Jesus, the true vine, and the rest will follow. The believer's relation to Jesus Christ is to abide in him, just as the branch abides in the vine. As Pastor Aaron shared a few weeks ago, we need to know the difference between the source of our faith and the resource that comes because of our faith. In Christian faith, Jesus Christ is the source. He's the true vine. The source of our faith is a person. It's not power. That's a resource. Today, we're often more resource-oriented than source-oriented. The resource is indeed wonderful, but often we tend to focus on the fruit rather than the person, forgetting that the fruit is only the result of the relationship. Jesus says, abide in me, the vine, and I will abide in you. Christian faith is, first of all, a relationship between the risen Jesus and us. Everything else is secondary. Jesus concludes this section with the promise of joy to those who abide in the vine and who are disciples of the vine. And the Greek word that's translated joy is the word charis. Uh, sorry, kara. It's related to the word charis, which means grace, uh, favor, gift, gratitude. There's a sense of surprise and excitement. Our abiding in Jesus results in surprising joy. The gospel is a cause for joy and celebration. Unfortunately, I think we've done a pretty poor job of conveying this sense of joy and celebration over the years. The gospel is compelling and attractive. You know, even John the Baptist's fiery preaching attracted great crowds, even though his style was different than Jesus. Uh, 18th century preacher and theologian Jonathan Edwards said, God does not drive us by duty, but draws us by beauty, not by fear, but by irresistible attraction. Shane Claiborne tells the story of a time he headed to downtown Philly 
for a stroll with some friends. And they walked down to Penn's Landing along the river where there were street performers and artists and musicians. They then passed by a street preacher who stood on a box screaming into a microphone. And beside him was a coffin with a fake dead body inside it. And he talked about how everyone was going was to die and be condemned if they didn't accept Jesus. And Claiborne wished that instead the street preacher could have focused on the joy of salvation. Claiborne writes, The more I have read the Bible and studied the life of Jesus, the more I have become convinced that Christianity spreads best not through force, but through fascination. But over the past few decades, our Christianity, at least here in the United States, has become less and less fascinating. We have given the atheists less and less to disbelieve. You know, people flocked to see and hear Jesus because they were fascinated by the love and grace and justice and joy that he radiated. The gospel is literally good news. It's a cause for celebration. Remember, Jesus promises joy to those who abide in the true vine. It's a celebration. In fact, it's a downright party. You know, my, my favorite Tony Campolo story offers us an example of what this joy can look like. Campolo was visiting Honolulu, Hawaii to speak at a conference. And because he had flown in from Philadelphia, he experienced severe jet lag his first night there. And so Campolo found himself awake and wandering the streets of Honolulu, uh, hungry, and looking for something to eat at three in the morning. And he finally discovered a place, uh, the only place that was open, a greasy spoon diner. And as he sat at the counter eating his dirty donut and drinking his scary coffee, the door of the diner suddenly swung open, and to his great discomfort, in marched eight or nine boisterous prostitutes. It was a small place, and they surrounded him on either side of him, and their talk was loud and crude. He felt completely out of place. So uh, just as he was about to make his getaway, he happened to overhear the woman next to him say, you know, tomorrow is my birthday. I'm going to be 39. One of her friends responded in a nasty tone, so what do you want from me? A birthday party? You want me to get you a cake and sing you happy birthday? Come on, said the first woman. Why do you have to be so mean? I'm just telling you, that's all. I don't want anything from you. I mean, why should you give me a birthday party? I've never had one in my whole life. Why should you give me one now? When Campolo heard that, he made his decision. He sat and waited until the women had left. And then he called over Harry, the guy behind the counter, and asked him, hey, do they come in here every night about the same time? Yeah, he answered. What was the name of the woman who's sitting right next to me? Agnes? Why? 
Well, because I heard her say that tomorrow is her birthday. What do you say? How about us throwing her a birthday party here tomorrow night? That's a great idea, Harry said. You know, you wouldn't understand this, but Agnes is a very kind person. Why don't you let me do the birthday cake? So at 2.30 the next morning, Campolo was back at the diner with decorations and a big sign that read, Happy Birthday, Agnes. Well, word must have gotten out on the street because it seemed like every prostitute in Honolulu was in that place. At 3 a.m. on the dot, the door of the diner swung open, in came Agnes and her friends, and everyone screamed, Happy Birthday, Agnes. Never had they seen anyone so flabbergasted, so stunned, so shaken. Her mouth fell open, and her legs started to buckle underneath her. And as her friend reached over to steady her and lead her to one of the stools, everyone in the room sang a rousing chorus of happy birthday. And when the birthday cake with all of the candles came, Agnes completely lost it. She looked down at the cake, and without taking her eyes off of it, she softly said, Harry, is it okay if I keep the cake a little while? Is it okay if we don't cut into it right away? Harry shrugged and said, sure, keep it. Take it with you if you want. So Agnes got off the stool, picked up the cake, and carrying it like it was the Holy Grail, slowly walked out the door. When the door closed, there was a stunned silence. Not knowing what else to do, Campolo broke the silence by saying, hey, why don't we pray? The funny thing was, they did. When he finished, Harry leaned over the counter and said, hey, you didn't tell me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? And Campolo's response was truly inspired. I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at three in the morning. Harry waited a moment and almost sneered as he said, no, you don't. You don't belong to a church like that. There is no church like that. If there was, I would join a church like that. Wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we all join a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at three in the morning. But here's the good news. If we're truly following Jesus, if we're truly abiding in him, that's precisely what the church of Jesus Christ is all about. The good news, the best news ever, is that Jesus Christ is the true vine and if we abide in him, we'll be filled with joy.
Craig Barnes, uh, president of Princeton Theological Seminary, told this year's graduates, the world needs so much from you. It needs your passion. It needs your hard work. But it's dying for your joy. The Church of Jesus Christ is where we will find joy and where our joy will be made complete. I join a church like that. How about you? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for being the true vine. Help us to abide in your love and to bear much fruit. And when we're being pruned, help us to remember that it's for our benefit that we're being cleansed. And thank you for your gift of joy. We pray that your joy may be in us so that our joy may be complete. In your name we pray. Amen.